Morning, y'all. We're glad to have you here at Westridge. Uh, we are ending our series today called My Church, and I have a very close friend of mine who happened to actually be my first boss who's here to speak uh, to us today, Gary York. Uh, Gary took me in when I was 19 years old and taught me everything I know. So if you don't like it here, you know the reason. It's all him to blame. Uh, but uh, he's uh, sharing with us just some of the lessons he's learned over his 30-year history at being at one church called Eastview Christian Church uh, in Bloomington, Illinois. And uh, he's uh, an incredible pastor and a great friend, so we're lucky to have him here today. You know, the fact is, it happens to all of us. And it can be one of the most frustrating things you have to deal with day by day by day. You can find yourself searching the house, I mean, top to bottom, trying to find them. And if you're like me, you get, you get pretty impatient, even agitated at times, when they're not where they're supposed to be. Periodically, I've accused my wife of leaving them someplace, only to discover them in coat pocket someplace, they're up in the bathroom, or they're on the floor of the car. I hate having to deal with them. I despise having to carry them. But the fact of the matter is I can't do without them. And so if you go to my house today and you walk in the kitchen and find the refrigerator, on the side of the refrigerator there's hook after hook after hook and they're loaded with keys. Keys. Keys are one of the most... They're a nuisance. They're, they're, they're one of the most difficult things you have to deal with day after day after day. Or at least I do. I mean, it's amazing when you stop to think about it. You have to have keys for everything, don't you? And from time to time, I think about all of those keys, and I go, boy, I wish I, had, I didn't have to carry these because they wear holes in my pocket. Don't, don't they do that for you if you have a big old wad of them? And it certainly doesn't make any fashion statement to have a big wad of them in your pants. Shorts or jeans, whatever the case may be. I mean, it looks like a growth on your leg when you carry those around. Those of you that are ladies and you carry a purse, I mean, if you've got a wad enough of keys big enough, put them in that purse. Purse is heavy. They even get lost in there from time to time. But I can't do without them. And I've discovered, though, that if I have the right key, I can open my house unlock my car, start my car, start my boat, go to the post office and open up my post office box thing there where I get mail. And if I've got the right digital key, I can open up and access all kinds of apps and websites and accounts. More importantly, however, Over the 32 years that I was the pastor at the Eastview Christian Church, I discovered some spiritual keys. They're life-changing. I can't live without those either and don't want to. Right after this music, I want to share those keys with you. My church. My church. This is my church. My church. This is my church. No, we are not alone. Because I'm going to make this Well, during the years that I was at the Eastview Church from Sunday to Sunday, especially when I knew there were lots and lots of visitors in the church, 
I'm going to stand up in front of all the people just like I'm doing today, and I would look everybody in the eye, and I would say, hey, I want you to know something about this church. I want you to know that we're just a bunch of, a, bunch of, bunch of broken people in the back of a pickup truck trying to get our act together. And Jesus is the answer to that. Now, I don't know if that resonates with you today, but that's some pretty profound stuff. Because the fact of the matter is that when we think about our personal lives, we really are like that. Because the deal is, there aren't any perfect people here. We're all imperfect. We're all broken. We're flawed in one way or another. Now, most of us like to keep that under wraps. There are times in which we don't want to talk about that. But in our personal moments, when we're by ourselves, we know. I know. I know that I'm like that. I know that most of us come from backgrounds that are unhealthy. We bring baggage into today. We've had experiences that are bad. Some of us come from poor families. Some of us come from poor backgrounds. Some of us come from horrible experiences. And to a degree, we all deal with guilt. And we'd sure like to get rid of that. And in my private moments, when I think about all those kinds of things... I keep asking this question, what's the remedy for that? What's the answer to that? If I know that I'm flawed, if I know that I'm broken, if I know that there are parts of my life that I'd sure like to get past, what's the answer to that? I'm happy that there's an answer to that from the Bible. I'm happy that there's an answer to that from God. Because the Bible says, listen to this, take a look at this. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who they are. How good is that? I mean, that's something you can take home with you today. There's an answer to all the brokenness in your life. When things have not gone well, or they're not going to go well in the future, and you know that's going to happen at some point, here's a great answer to that. So here's a key I want to leave with you today. The key is this, that God extends incredible grace to fix the lives of mistake-ridden people like me, regardless of how bad they are, regardless of how bad I am regardless of how bad you are. God's grace is about fixing that. One of the things that really helps me with that in a very practical way is the story of a guy in the Old Testament part of the Bible. I'm sure you've heard of him in one way or another. His name is David. He was the shepherd boy, if you know that story. In a military battle, he's the guy that killed Goliath. He's the guy that also became king of all Israel, The same Israel you know about today. Same country, same people. Most of the time we think about him, when you get all the way through the scripture, you think about him, we know him as a guy after God's own heart. But if you look at the particulars of his life, you find that his life was all over the place. Flawed, mistake-ridden, bad choices, moral failures. I mean, he committed adultery. I mean, he was married eight times. 
He lied over and over and over again. He was guilty of murder. He was guilty of manipulation. He was guilty of misusing people. He had a family that was dysfunctional in every way. His kids hated him. And yet, over and over in Scripture, you find that he was a man after God's own heart. How do you remedy that? You remedy it by understanding God's grace. Because in the midst of every one of those flaws and bad choices and moments of failure, he would recognize that in his life and he would go to God and he and God would hash it out. He'd say, God, man, I, I need to be fixed. I need to be repaired. I'm sorry about what I did. Is there any way to remedy that? And every time God would go, if you're genuine in heart, the answer is yes. And that's what he and God would hash out. And for that reason, he became known to us as a man after God's own heart, which is great encouragement for us. When I look at David's life and then I look at my life and I kind of line them up, they draw a picture for me. It's kind of like looking at the stock market these days. I mean, when you think about it, the stock market's all over the place, isn't it? I mean, you look, you look back over the past 10 years, it's all over the place. And that's, in many ways, a picture of your spiritual journey, mine too. At some point in time, I took the leap and I became a follower of Jesus. And like I stepped into this spiritual box, it's kind of like the stock market. And I took, I took an upward trend to be more and more and more like Christ. But it wasn't very long until my life was like the market. It was up and down and up and down and up and down. And it felt like it was down more than it was up. May not have been true, but that's what it felt like. And I keep looking at that and I go, how in the world does God deal with that? How do I deal with that? And the answer is, God's grace fixes that. God is not asking for me and he's not asking for you to be perfect. He's not expecting us to be perfect. All God wants to do is have the opportunity to engage your life and mine and over time to slowly change it. God's grace is all about forgiveness. God's grace is all about starting over. God's grace is all all about a do-over in your life, no matter how ugly it may have been or is today. The beauty about God's grace is it forgives guilt and it replaces that with incredible peace. The grace of God has the flexibility to handle your mistakes and and, and failures and bad choices and setbacks. He can handle all of that at any given time. And if you give it the opportunity, grace can rearrange your life. It can stabilize your life. It gives you direction. And the biggest thing, over time, I mean, over the long haul of your life, God improves your character. And he will improve your conduct. And you know how he does that? He does that by conforming you to the image of Jesus. I'm not exactly sure how he does it. I just know that he does it. I mean, I know know that he uses the Holy Spirit that he puts in my life to do it. And I know that he uses the content of Scripture to do it. I just, I don't, I don't understand the how. But I'm delighted with it. 
I'm happy that it works like that. Jesus is the answer. Now, I can't prove to you that he's the answer, but I know that the Bible talks about it repeatedly. And I know that I've experienced it in my own life over and over and over again. But for you to experience it, and that's what I want to happen today, for you to experience it, you have to choose it. Just like there came a point in my life and when, when I chose it. More than anything, I want you to try it. But you have to choose it to try it. Speaking of choosing it, have you ever read that part of the New Testament where Jesus chose what we learned over time to be the, the 12 apostles, the disciples? 12 very interesting guys. However, when I read through that story in the New Testament and I look at the people that Jesus chose and the background out of which they come, and if I'm thinking about launching a church, if I think about putting together this this thing that's going to last for a long time, I probably would not have chosen any of those 12. The reason is when you look at their life, they're just fishermen. They don't come with any education. They don't have a good resume. They aren't people, when you see them, you're wowed by them. They're just kind of average people. And yet, that's a really, really important thing to note. I want you to look at the scripture with me. It comes out of the book of 1 Corinthians. It's in chapter 12, and in two verses, verse 12 and verse 22, listen to this. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ, the church. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. That's a pretty profound statement right there. That's kind of like the grace statement. I'm happy to know this one too. And over time, here's the key I found. Okay, Here's the second key I found. God often uses mundane people like me to achieve the remarkable. This is great news. Back in 1975, at the ripe old age of 28, I received an invitation to become the pastor of the Eastview Christian Church in Bloomington Normal, downstate. By the time I actually got there, I had turned 29. And in the first few years of my work there, I just kind of followed traditional patterns. I mean, I'm a third-generation pastor in my family, and the stuff that I saw in my grandfather and the stuff I saw in my father, in fact, stuff I saw in a few uncles, I went, I, I can do that. I can do that. And early on, those are the things I did. Nothing wrong with that. However, there came a time not long after I got there, maybe three years or so, about 79, 1980, And I don't know how to describe what happened. I'm going to tell you what happened, but I don't necessarily know how to describe it. It it, it felt like at times a nudge. It felt like a a prompting. Um, I felt like um, a communication. Uh, I felt like an urge. 
And here's what it was like. Here are the results. In some way or another, I felt like God was saying to me, I'm going to do something remarkable with this church, and you get to be a part of that. Did he ever? And today, I am more than humbled by the fact that God took a very insignificant guy, a guy that wasn't very good at most things, a guy that has an introverted personality, a guy who is at times quite rebellious. But he used me, and he worked through me to build this remarkable church in Bloomington Normal. And what I want you to know, I know this sounds trite, but what I want you to know is that if God did that with me, God can do that with you. I don't know where he wants to take you. I don't know what he wants to do. I don't know how it'll turn out. I don't know what the deliverable is. I just know that he wants to do that with you. You don't have to be some remarkable star for him to do something remarkable with you. Like I said earlier, I can't prove that to you. I can't make that happen. But I can't ask you to try it. I can't encourage you to try it. I can encourage you to step out in faith based on the evidence that you see in Christ and try it and see where he takes you and see what he does with you. Speaking of trying it, in the New Testament portion of the Bible, depending on which version of the Bible you read, you will find a phrase repeated about 59 times. It's called the one another's. Things like love one another, serve one another, help one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. 59 times, depending on the version, 59 times in the Bible, that phrase shows up. Those are incredible statements. In fact, if you look in the Bible to that section of the Bible when the church started, it's in Acts chapter 2, the church was just like that, exactly like that. It's remarkable. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, look at these two verses with me. Verse 44 and verse 45. The Bible says, All the believers met together and shared everything they had. Now watch this. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. There's an expression of the one and others. It's pretty incredible what they did. When I look at that, there, there are times when I read through that and I go... I wonder what they got for what they sold. I wonder what the market was like. Did they actually sell some houses? And if they did, who bought them? And when they got the money, did they use banks? What did they do? The fact of the matter is it doesn't really matter. What matters was the deliverable. Outside of themselves, they impacted the lives of people. And here's the key. Here's the key. This is one of the things I learned in 32 years at Eastview Church. God created a church 
filled with gifted individuals who encourage people like me, regardless of where I am on my spiritual journey. If you've ever been to California, there are a lot of things to go see, but one of the things you need to see sometime are the redwood trees. Now, if you've never been here, sometime to go to California, put, put, put that on your trip list, okay? Place you want to go. A number of years ago, I went and saw them for the first time. And pictures don't describe it. They really don't describe it. I mean, here are these trees, some of which stand 350 feet in the air. and weigh 500 tons. Here's the remarkable thing. The root system on redwood trees only go down in the ground 5 to maybe 10 feet. Here's the deal. How in the world, in the midst of a storm or whatever, how in the world can a tree that huge be sustained upright? You know the answer? I didn't know this. The answer is that when the root system in redwood trees grow, they, instead of going down, they reach out to each other and they interconnect. And they can survive amazing amounts of storms when that happens. Now, the deal is, that's what the church ought to be like. In fact, I've experienced that in my own family. Let me tell you a story. It was July of 1999. My family and I, I have three children. Today, they're all married. Each of them have two grandkids. But in 1999, we didn't have all the grandkids. We only had one or two. And we were headed to the lake house in northern Minnesota. And we all took off in about a 24-hour span of time. We all took off, and Janet and I were the last ones to leave. And we were about halfway to the lake, and my phone rang, and it was my son-in-law, the one that's married to our oldest daughter. And he goes, gee, he said, I got some tough news. Jennifer, that's our youngest daughter, Jennifer on her way to the cabin has been in an automobile accident, and she's non-responsive. Uh, they put her on a helicopter, and they're lifting her from Wadena, Minnesota, to Minneapolis, to North Memorial Hospital. Now, if you've ever gotten a phone call like that, that'll rock your world, and it rocked mine. I've been with a lot of people who had head trauma, and I know what the results are like, and they're not good. We had about two hours to get to Minneapolis. We got to Minneapolis, found this hospital, went to the emergency room. Jennifer was, was, was laying there. I mean, it looked like she was asleep, but she was unconscious. And she was unconscious in a coma for two weeks. Now, the long part of this is she survived. But for about two weeks, it was touch and go about whether or not she was going to live. And she was hospitalized for six weeks And today, if she was in the room today and you were to talk to her, you would never know. And we're thankful for that. But here's where the story goes. While we were in that hospital in Minneapolis, people from my small group at the church, several of them made a trip to Minneapolis from Wilmington. Just showed up unannounced. They brought gifts. They brought money. They spent time with us. They prayed with us. They hung out with us. Took us out to dinner. For the whole time that we were there. Brought me this envelope of cash. To this day, I don't know exactly who gave it. They wouldn't tell me. But it provided enough cash to cover all the expenses for those two weeks. And to get us home at the end of those two weeks. 
When I got home, the story didn't end there. When I got home, when we walked into the house, suddenly I noticed that the house is like all clean. I mean, I mean you, you could smell it. It's not that the house was a mess, but you know how it is when you get ready to go on vacation. Not everything gets put away. When you come up, everything's put away. Laundry's done. Everything's spick and span. I go to the refrigerator, open up the doors, full of food. Go, where did that come from? Who, who got in? It's not my kids. Nobody has a key but my kids, and they're, all, they're, they're, they're not there. They were with us. How'd they get in my house? Who did all this? And to this day, I don't know. Other than I know it was people from our church. That situation, what I want you to know, I could tell that story a long, long, long story over a long period of time. But I just want you to know that the deal is those people came and provided encouragement to us. They provided stability for us. They provided friendship for us. They, they, just, they were just there to hang with us, to do life with us through this tough period of time. And further, the benefits of that experience vaulted the Eastview Church into an accelerated pattern of growth. And today, in support of the weekend worship experience like we've had here today, all kinds of small groups were birthed. And we figured out by doing that, we just kind of went with the flow. It's how we ought to do church. It's more than just this worship experience on the weekend as good as it is. It's where people make great friends. It's where people are valued and encouraged and supported and challenged. It's where you learn to pray. It's where you learn to engage the Bible. It's where you learn to celebrate with people. It's where you learn to cry with people. And the big scheme of it, it's where you just learn to hang with people and do life. Regardless of how life goes, you hang with them and you do it together. Today, at that church there are over 370 of those groups and over 4,000 people are in them. It's how they do church. It's how they do church. You know what happens in those groups? A lot of things happen in those groups, but this scripture gives one observation. It's in Philippians 2, verse 3. It says, don't be jealous or proud, but be humble And consider others more important than yourselves. Care about them as much as you care about yourselves. That's what happens in them. That's what happened to us. And once it happens to you, you figure out it's something you want to share, you're willing to share with somebody else. Whether it's a time of celebration or a time of heartache, you hang with them. Jesus once said, people will know that you do life with me by the way you love one another. That's what I want for the Westridge Church. That's what I want for you personally. That's what I want for your family. That's what I want for you and your friends. And if you give that an opportunity, it'll change who you are. It'll change your church. It's a great attractional quality. When you look at the New Testament, that's what the church was like. That's what we ought to be like. That's life-changing at the core. The final key is this one. Jesus is the central figure to my Christian faith. In the book of John in the New Testament in chapter 5, Jesus is having a conversation with some religious legal leaders. 
They were kind of like attorneys of the day. And uh, their attitudes weren't particularly good. They tended to be argumentative. They tended to be abusive with their language. They had a tendency to misuse people. And in that conversation, Jesus challenged them. He challenged them about the scripture. He said to them, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. And yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. What's the point? I just want you to know that if you spend time reading the Bible or hearing the Bible, but you never see and you never engage Jesus, you miss the point of what's written. I want you to know today that you can place your faith in Jesus Christ and you can receive the full expression and the full impact of God's grace without knowing everything in the Bible without understanding everything in the Bible, without even believing yet everything in the Bible. That's the thing that got in the way of those religious legal leaders. They were looking at the Scripture, but they didn't see what was actually there, and it got in their way. The things you don't understand about the Bible, the things that you don't yet agree with in the Bible, God understands that. But don't let that stand in your way relative to the evidence about Jesus himself. This historical figure come from God who came to die for you. To bring grace to you. Don't miss that. Somebody once said, you get by giving, you find by seeking, and your return is in direct proportion to what you invest. As you head into the next stage of your spiritual journey, somewhere along the line, you're going to run into the keys I shared with you today. And when you find them, embrace them. Make the investment. Embrace them. Try them. Let them impact you. Let them change you. Because as they do, the benefits of that change will be peace. The benefits of the change will be purpose. The benefits of the change will be comfort. The benefits of the change will be forgiveness. The benefits of the change will be a joy, a newfound joy that today you may think to be unimaginable. But it's there. And you'll experience it if you try it. In the early days of my ministry, my grandfather, who is now deceased, so is my father. He used to say to me, son, when you get ready to preach, get something to say. Get up and say it. And sit down when you're done. Well, I'm done. I just hope and pray, though, that when God shows up in the next stage of your life, he staggers you with what he wants to do with you and in you and through you.